Hi, and welcome to episode 167 of the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast, the IOPN We Do Science podcast, and I am Laurent Bannock, the host. Now, earlier today, I had a great conversation with Professor Michael Gleason. Mike Gleason, you may well know that name for several reasons. One of them would be that Mike has been a guest on this podcast before, a few years ago now, where we talked about nutrition and immunology for sport and exercise contexts, uh, a great area of expertise for Mike Gleason. But also, if like me, you've been fascinated with sport and exercise, nutrition, sports science, Mike Gleason has contributed a great deal to the evolution of knowledge in our field. And no doubt if you've done your degrees in sports science, sports nutrition, master's degrees, whatever, you'll absolutely know who Mike Gleason is. So you'll know that today's conversation is going to be a great one. And there's no greater conversation than talking about football or soccer, of course. And today's conversation is going to be about that football nutrition. Now, we could talk for months on end, literally months on end, about what you would need to know about sport and exercise nutrition, sports science, biochemistry, etc. that's related to football, let alone all the other stuff like the tactical components, the strength conditioning components, sports psychology, and so on. So there's no way we're going to cover everything in this podcast today, this 90-minute podcast. But I've worked a lot in elite football. Mike Gleason's had a lot to do with working with elite football as well, uh, and also just personal interest in football. And of course, football is an incredibly popular, ubiquitous sport, so to speak. I'm not sure you use the right word there, but it is. You know, it's something that a lot of people play, whether it's in the garden, at school, at college, at university, and or, you know, have managed to get to the pro elite level. Either which way, it's a game a lot of people love, not just in Europe or the UK, but around the world, it is a massive sport. So it's an area that performance nutritionists, sports nutritionists are very likely to get involved in, in one form or another. So we talk about sport and exercise nutrition through the lens of people that are working in those contexts, whether it's research or whether it's practice, particularly from a practice perspective, putting this science into practice, there are some important angles there, some important concepts that need to be considered when thinking about sport and exercise nutrition strategies. So these are the things that we talk about. There are many other sort of areas you can get into. And of course, I will be linking in the show notes to the various resources we talked about, like the UEFA expert group statement on nutrition elite football that Mike Gleason was a contributor to along Many others led by James Collins there, a practitioner working for many years in elite sports. So it's a really top crew of authors there. We talk a bit about that and how that came together, as well as Mike's latest book on nutrition for top performance in soccer, which is very much more focused sort of at the applying it into practice side of things, a great text for nutritionists, sports nutritionists and users, players, that sort of thing. So anyway, before we, or before I unleash this conversation onto you, please check out what we do at the IOPM. We are obsessed. My team and I are obsessed with helping support the growth, the training and development of performance nutritionists. That's one reason for this podcast. That's one reason for some of the research that I and my colleagues have contributed to. But in particular, our main offering is our diploma in performance nutrition. Now, the whole point in our diploma 
is it is not an alternative to say your degree or your master's or whatever other route you've come into nutrition, for example. The point is, is that there's only so much time your educational program, however which way you've achieved it, your nutrition coaching, your sports science strength conditioning, your nutrition dietetics, sports nutrition masters is still only going to have a limited amount of attention on sport and exercise nutrition and particularly its practice. For example, one to two modules in a typical master's degree. Our program is five modules dedicated entirely to sport and exercise nutrition knowledge contextualization and application into practice. So that's really the difference there. So if that's something you want to do is learn in depth about performance, nutrition, sport and exercise nutrition and how to apply it into practice, then our program will be of interest to you. You can check that out at www.theiopn.com as well, of course, as the podcast and all the past episodes and the show notes and so on can all be accessed through our website at www.theiopn.com where also check out our new SenPro system which is our sport and exercise nutrition software system for performance nutritionists sports nutritionists nutrition coaches and so on working either with individual clients and or in team settings to help you do effective meal planning, communication, behavior change, manage your practice, so much to it. Just check out that uh, it's developed a lot over the coming months. We're very proud of it. We're putting a lot into it. Um, It's there to help you. It's the only specific platform there for sport and exercise nutritionists. And you can learn about it at www.theiopn.com. So that's enough about all of that. Now, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Professor Mike Gleason about sport and exercise nutrition for football. Enjoy. Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. I am Laurel Bannock, and today I'm going to have what I know will be a great conversation about football and nutrition. And I can think of nobody I want to have this conversation more with today than with Mike Gleason, Professor Michael Gleason. And I'm going to say welcome back for several reasons, Mike. But firstly, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Lauren. I think you're going to know what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there's two reasons. Firstly, for the hardened fans of this podcast, um, they will recall that we did do a podcast and dare I say it's been a few years ago now where we talked about one of the the areas you're particularly well known for which is your expertise your research in exercise and nutrition related immunology that sort of thing which anybody who's studied sport and exercise nutrition will be familiar with you on that but also you have as we will discuss today got a lot of experience and interest in football. But we tried to have this conversation before and all sorts of things happened like pandemics. And I then ended up traveling around the world being a nutritionist for a football team and just things went a bit nuts. So it's great to come back and have this chat with you. And I suspect we'll all be the better for it. And in that time, actually, your latest book has come out on uh, nutrition for top performance in soccer. So I think actually the timing of this is is rather good. And the reason why I wanted to have this conversation with you is, is like many of the guests that, that I invite on to We Do Science is you're not just a great scientist. I know you may not say that about yourself, but you're, you know, you have had an immense impact on sport and exercise 
nutrition, and that's one thing. But also, you have crossed that bridge between science and practice and had the opportunity to either directly or indirectly help apply science in this case as it relates to performance nutrition in, into practice and and many other areas including with ASCA you can droop you you've done a number of publications but in particular the uh, the sports nutrition textbook that we use on our course at the IOPN for example so it's almost as if wherever I look I keep seeing Mike Gleason and <laughs> and your impacts but football you know is a really interesting one and that of course is what we're going to focus on today but before we we get into the uh, meat and potatoes of this chat today. Just give us a little bit of background, Mike, about yourself. There will be new listeners who don't know who you are, what your background is, despite how I've just started it. So I think it would be great just to, to kick this off with a bit of background. Okay, I'll try and keep this pretty quick because it could be a long story. Otherwise. Yeah, I started off doing a first degree in biochemistry in the 1970s at uh, University of Birmingham. And then was lucky enough to do a PhD with a great guy called Dr. Jack Waring at Preston Polytechnic, which is now the University of Central Lancashire. But it was a, actually a, a PhD on the effects of diet on energy metabolism, and exercise metabolism. So it was really interesting. That's really got me into the whole field of nutrition, having covered a very broad degree in sort of biochemistry of everything, really. And from that, several postdoc positions, a few lectureships along the way, eventually got uh, back to working at the University of Birmingham, in the Sport and Exercise Sciences Department, some probably 20 years after that. And that's why I first became professor uh, about 20 years ago now. And then from there, I just made one more move when I got my arm twisted to, to move to Loughborough University. And uh, yeah, I've carried on researching that vein of exercise and immunology applied to sport and also the general population's health as well. And that's become much more relevant in these days of COVID, of course. And yeah, I've always had an interest in sport. And in particular, my favorite spectator sport is football or soccer. There's actually two versions of my book. Actually, one's got football in the title. The other one, as you mentioned, is soccer. One's based for the American audience and the worldwide audience, South America as well, the soccer one. And then there's the football one that's been the one that's out in sort of should be out anyway, in the UK and Europe. So that's where I am now. I retired six years ago now, and I've just written a few healthy lifestyle guidebooks. We've done a third edition of the sport nutrition textbook. And yeah, now this uh, book on uh, nutrition in football. Yeah. And I know that that's the shortened version, Mike. So <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing that strikes the listeners, as it does myself, is just you know, how many years you've been involved in sport and exercise science and sport and exercise nutrition research. And what not everyone will be aware of is, is just how new the field actually is. So it seems to me that you, you pretty much were there kind of at the beginning. So the, for you, the, the evolution, the journey from day one, when you started getting your initial degree, your initial education, all the way to becoming not just an educator, but somebody who's actually beaten a pathway into into new knowledge new areas of interest and have as i said actually contributed to what we see as sport and exercise nutrition nowadays i mean just it be just cuz you're here i want to take advantage of your own reflection on on that as you're driving into retirement i realize but you'll never not 
maintain an interest in this, of course, in that sort of rear view mirror of all that, of all that science, that education and that knowledge. I mean, you know, how do you feel about all that and yeah. where we're going? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, when I did my degrees, I mean, sports science degrees were, I don't know, they hadn't been invented at that time as such, not in the form that they are now, you know. So uh, I always thought it was a, it's always been, I thought it was a benefit to me to have done a degree in a, you know, a subject like chemistry, or maybe I might have done physiology if I wasn't going to do that, or even medicine, and then move into the field of sport and exercise science and apply that knowledge because you get obviously doing a whole degree in biochemistry you get a much better understanding of things like you know metabolism and the basis of nutrition than you do from perhaps doing a you know just doing a sports science degree where you get that maybe as you know one or two modules during your three-year course and i think that comes across when you go to conferences and you hear people speak and you think well you know sometimes you think well that's not quite right and it's sometimes you know the basic biochemistry isn't there underpinning you know the nutrition advice that people are trying to give so if i was giving advice to anybody about doing a nutrition degree i'd I'd also say you know read more broadly outside the subject taking the physiology the psychology the biochemistry you know, to get a better understanding of metabolism and understand the units you should be talking about when we're talking about concentrations of things in the blood, in the muscle, and the doses of various uh, compounds we're giving the the athletes. Well, of course, that's what's happening now, isn't it? Is that people will, they'll go get their degree in sports science, exercise science, strength conditioning, whatever. Okay, strength conditioning is much more of a specialised pathway directly aimed at preparing people for a profession in strength conditioning as part of my past was an snc coach but like you just said there is a difference between nutrition and sport and exercise nutrition where sport and exercise nutrition is you know it's sort of the apex of it's the specialization bit and one should not be focusing on that at the expense of the broader health related aspects of of nutrition, which goes back many more years, of course, from an educational perspective, you know, and there's vast amounts of public health focused nutrition, clinical related nutrition. And uh, I'm pleased that you say that in the way that you do. I have a concern that we have where there's too much focus on things like sport and exercise nutrition without enough focus on, particularly from preparing practitioners to understand those basic fundamentals in more detail, which of course goes far, you know, you can't get all of that into a degree or into a master's, which is why one needs to continuously learn and develop themselves and get on board with continuing professional development and other programs and courses and so on. And of course, listen to podcasts like this and read books like the one that you've just written. And, you know, the purpose of this chat today isn't to talk about education programs and so on. So we'll move on from that dangerous <laughs> rabbit yes. hole that we have there. But let's just fast forward this immediately to nutrition. You know, why have you developed such an interest in nutrition, not just as a spectator, your choice of spectator sport, but where you've channeled your expertise in sport and exercise science and particularly nutrition as a specialization? Why football What or soccer? What led you to this point? Two things. One, one is actually I love the sport, love watching the sport, you know, and that's my favourite pastime on a Saturday afternoon or a, you know, a Saturday evening watching it on the TV. But other than that, 
I was involved in the uh, UEFA expert group consensus review that was done. Actually, took about three years in the writing. It's uh, now about 20 years or so getting on for that since the last one, which was done under the auspices of FIFA back in 2006. I think that one was actually published. Yeah, this one took so long to write, but not so much the writing. Lots of people contributed things, so actually 31 different authors on the paper, including myself. But because you have so many people involved, you know, getting to a consensus on various topics can be difficult. Sometimes you just have to go with who you think are the best educated people or the practicing people doing the research and knowing the subject area and rely on them to produce something that most of us can agree on. And also the editing as well, you know, with many people from many different countries, most of whom probably first language isn't English, you know, then actually taking what they've produced and trying to put it into a sort of a similar format, similar type of language. So it doesn't doesn't really feel like one person's written that section and somebody else has written another. You want to have it, you know, flow through it all sounds and reads the same and correcting all that. Sending off to the UA for people to look at themselves. Several med- members of the medical committee wanted to be on as co-authors on the paper after they'd reviewed it and sent back comments. There were some things we agreed with, some things we didn't. But, yeah, again, we come together for a consensus agreement. So, yes, it takes a long time to write these things when there's so many people involved and so many interested parties. So uh, yeah, that was well, difficult. But that was, when this thing came on board, you know, it actually got published. And then I thought, well, actually, it's all great it's all but it's all very science based but that's that was the purpose of what it was to produce a, an evidence based you know uh, guideline on what players probably should be eating before during and after games and for their overall health etc but you know to put it actually into practical terms that people particularly I was thinking in amateur sport amateur football is huge across the world you know far more amateur players than there are professionals but they all look up to the professionals so why not learn from what the pros are being advised to do you know and some of them um, will become pros of course they will yes yes of course applying that you know and uh, letting them learn from that was the goal. But then again, the you know, the language of the paper, the science paper, has to be translated into sort of everyday English that the average player or the person supporting that player, be it their perhaps a coach in the amateur game or a, a nutritionist, a dietitian, or even a performance chef being involved in the nutrition of professional players. So they've all got something to go back to. And indeed for the players themselves to actually understand, you know, to a degree why they're getting this advice to eat this on one day and this on another and take this half time, etc. So if they have a better understanding of it, they're much more likely, I think, to be able to comply with doing it if they realize what the potential benefits are of doing what they're advised to do and what the potential pitfalls of you know not doing it might be if you're if all your opponents and your your competitors are doing the same. Absolutely. I think you make a good point there. You know, it's not just about an individual trying to do this. There's a lot of stakeholders involved, you know, whether it's at the elite level or the sub-elite level or just at the completely amateur level, one way or the other. There's all sorts of people involved from, like you say, the nutritionists, 
who are absolutely not the only people that should be knowing this stuff. That needs to be translated to a language and a practical aspect that the players themselves can put into practice. If they're lucky to be supported by by chefs, as they typically are at the elite level, or what is particularly common or becoming increasingly common is the whole personal chef phenomenon thing now where rightly or wrongly the you know the players are getting all their own individualized help and support and there's a danger there of course of having you know a team of over a dozen people doing something completely different not singing from the same hymn sheet and so on so i think you know it doesn't matter how we look at it i think this consensus on what constitutes as an evidence-based perspective on the do's and don'ts with regards to nutrition support is invaluable. And even for me, somebody who's worked at the level that I do, you know, I walked around with literally this consensus statement was in my bag or on my iPad or whatever, as you know, uh, there's so many things that go on. So much new knowledge comes to mind. It's a really good grounding tool, grounding document uh, that I recommend everyone has. And I'll, I'll be linking to these papers and books and so on that we're talking about in the notes on this podcast. But before we tantalize and tease the listeners with some of the areas that are discussed, both in the consensus statement and areas that you put into particularly practical formats, applied formats in your new book, just quickly come back to this concept of a consensus statement. You've already made it clear how complex it is. I know I've contributed to a few consensus papers in the past and boy, oh boy, is it complicated. And you made a point about people from different levels of expertise. You may or may not have agreed on everything, language, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of stuff going on there, but ultimately you arrive at this consensus paper. Why is the consensus paper important though, Mike? Why can't people just look this stuff up on Google or get a paper that's 20 years old, the previous version, for example? Why is this a must read for anyone interested in this area? Well, I think because, yeah, obviously for, from the historical perspective, things move on, not only in the world of nutrition itself, so if you think back to 2006, yeah, we knew about some of the supplements like creatine, then, for example, the importance of carbohydrate, but there's no mention of consuming concentrated beetroot juice, for example, for that nitrate boost, not much on beta alanine. I don't think the idea of using creatine to help boost muscle glycogen resynthesis in the sort of recovery from a match had uh, even been considered at that time. And yeah, so there's, there's things that have moved on in the world of, of nutrition and much more perhaps emphasis on personalized nutrition rather than one size fits all. And also in the world of football, the game has changed over the years. You know, 15, 20 years ago, we now see a much more intense game with uh, more high intensity actions, more distance sprinted. You know, if you look at the percentage of successful passes, that's improved compared to 15, 20 years ago quite considerably. So, you know, the technical demands of the game have increased as well. Along with that, the training demands have been increased in proportion to match what players do on match days. So the game itself has evolved. 
We've got this new sort of intense pressing style of play implied by many of the top teams like Liverpool, Manchester United. I would have included Leicester City in that until last night, but we won't speak about that. But, you know, that's one of the things that brought them success. Quick, very quick counter-attacking and also pressing, you know. So all of this increases the demands on individual players. So your forwards are having to do this pressing in a, in addition to their normal sort of, uh, you know, uh, making the runs to get on the end of through balls. So, you know, the workload of those guys has increased considerably. Okay, the overall distance covered hasn't really changed. That's perhaps the one thing that hasn't changed compared with 20 years ago. But everything about the intensity of the game and perhaps also the mental attitudes that are needed, the concentration that's needed for the additional technical skills that have shown improvements over the years. You know, everything happens that much quicker. So, you know, perception's got to be quicker and your attention to detail and concentration's got to be there even more. And there's a few more layers of demand, stress, if you like, that's placed on players, of course, with Travel, uh, you know, there's a lot of travel oh, yes. on nowadays. I'm sticking my hand up as being a particularly sensitive to that concept, having, you know, traveled a lot with football teams over the years. And as I was mentioning, you know, we're talking about the players, but what about the support staff? I mean, they're there to look after the players. Who's looking after the support staff? But that's another podcast for another day. But, but Mike, it is an interesting one, though, because when we talk about nutrition support for football players we're not just talking about you know fueling them to you know to have a good game there's that you know we want to we want to factor in things like the potential for injury which does happen illness like you mentioned you know we're all very tuned into things like covid of course but prior to covid we were all interested in this because of, which is actually one of the things we talked about in that podcast years ago about reducing infection incidents in team sports. You know, it's not a new thing. Colds, flus, upper respiratory tract infections in general are can be a real, real major issue, particularly for these mega highly paid, you know, football players. And it's not just about the money that that represents to the team or the impact that has on the individual, but it's, a, you know, a really important, skilled player who's not on the pitch at that time, it, you know, has an impact on how the rest of the team might perform in terms of technical functioning of the team and psychological functioning. Some players are very important to the leadership or the structure of the team. And of course, there's what, you know, Neil Walsh talks about, of course, the the sort of the total load of stress and resistance to stress from his perspective, which we've covered in a past podcast before, all the way through to things like sleep and, you know, the impact that that can have. And I guess the area that I see quite a lot is, the advent of social media and the impact that that has, and I'm not talking about information, poor information that influences individuals' choices in nutrition, but the obsession that some people have over social media, like players, you, you know, you see them immediately after training sessions, or even if they're even allowed a phone in the dressing room at half time, you know, they'll be looking up stuff on social media. And where I'm going with this is what they look like with their shirt off, Mike. <laughs> So there is a, you know, there is an angle there where some players will undertake extra training sessions and or will engage in certain nutritional practices because of the impact that it has on either what they look like or their perception of what they're not getting from the club, which is all quite interesting, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Uh, Yeah. I see where you're going with that. Yeah. 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 So anyway, 
In the consensus statement and in your book, you cover the the areas that we're all going to need to know that's relevant to, well, all kinds of football, particularly elite football, like match day nutrition, which we'll come back to in a minute, training day nutrition, body composition, which I've referenced an angle on, stressful environments and travel, cultural diversity and dietary considerations. And I'm thinking back to my time with Egypt in the last World Cup. That was a real interesting one. Of course, supplements, which we do need to talk about today, rehabilitation or injury support. And uh, you even in the consensus statement talk about the very interesting, unique needs of, of referees, particularly at the elite level. I think we forget about the refs and junior high level players. And of course, that's the development of, of young aspiring football players, a sort of the very young, youthful, I'm not suggesting you're not youthful, Mike, but the young, youthful <laughs> Mike Gleasons who aspire to be a Leicester City player, for example, are out there at all days and hours you know, practicing their art and hopefully getting a look in to get into an academy. And I actually know family members that have tried this. So the obsession goes in many, many different directions. But I think what people are going to want from our conversation today, because they can read all these things, obviously, is for us to just have a little delve into some of these areas. But before we do that, if you could just quickly describe the characteristics of a football player in terms of the physical characteristics that we need to be bearing in mind from a need when we're thinking about what the needs of that football player is in order to, from a training perspective, from a performance perspective, that would say differentiate them from, let's say, a marathon runner or a triathlete or or whatever. What is it that makes a football player a specific kind of, of athlete that we need to bear in mind when it comes to nutrition support? Yeah, well, I think first thing, you know, it's a, to realise that, you know, soccer is essentially a high-intensity intermittent sport. So you're not talking about continuously running at pretty much the same pace like you might for a, you know, a marathon runner. You know, you're talking about sort of stops and starts to the game and being able to, to run, you know, quickly when you have to and being able to keep that up you know, for 90 minutes or even 120 minutes for games that go to extra time. So uh, that's part of it. And to do that, you need to be you know, resilient as well. There's physical contact in the game. So, you know, you, you hear about managers not liking players who get brushed off the ball too easily or at the other end of the spectrum are weak in the tackle. You know, you've got to be able to tackle. You've got to be able to pass. You've got to be able to shoot. You've got to be able to physically challenge with other players. When you see what's going on at corners, you don't know what's happening with the ball, you know, where the corner's coming in from. But if you look, actually take your eyes from that and just see what's happening in the box, there's a lot of wrestling going on there. People, you know, competing or trying to block off players' runs and, and that and even grabbing them. And occasionally, of course, the referee spots it and gives a penalty. But it's by and large, that's fairly rare. It's got to be a fairly blatant one for them to do that. But they get away with a lot of physical blocks and that. So although although it's not quite the same as rugby, you know, there's, a bit, there's say, quite, a lot, there's quite <laughs> a lot going on. You know, people always focus on where the ball's going and when it's on the ground, they'll be looking at the ball and what the player's doing with their feet. When you look what they're doing with their arms as well, hmm. Both the attacker, you know, don't don't try to push off the defender or the defender trying to link an arm there or, you know, there's a lot of physical interaction going on there. So the guys have got to be, you know, strong physically and they've got to be strong in the upper legs in particular, you know, for the shooting and the tackling, the jumping. Some of these guys can jump pretty high nowadays when you see just from a standing jump, you know. So there's all that going on as well as the endurance of keeping that 
and also the mental side that I said before, you know, you've got to do this and think sometimes instinctively perhaps, but also, you know, seeing where a through ball is and being able to react very, very quickly and produce things in split seconds of, you know, skill. I mean, that's what turns us on watching the game, isn't it? These exquisite skills of striking the ball, passing the ball, dribbling the ball that we see these great players able to to do. And you've got to do that in week out and sometimes, you know, two, even three games a week on some occasions. Absolutely. And look, you know, we're never going to cover this all in this conversation today, but I think it is important to differentiate things like, you know, the needs and requirements of a player for training, for match day, you've obviously got pre-season, in-season, off-season. There's a fair number of phases. And, you know, it's definitely interesting to see what state the players are in at the beginning of a season relative towards the end of the season. And then you've got the players that have international duties. And when everyone else is lying on a beach somewhere, you know, these guys are out playing even more. And the sheer congestion of fixtures which just seems like it just keeps getting more and more isn't it tell us a bit more about that and the implications that has for the sort of the bodies and i guess their minds but particularly the bodies of these athletes and why this is important for us to factor in well yeah i mean you're right i mean these games are taking place sometimes every you know three days so it's not a lot of time to recover you know, from the biochemistry point of perspective or the nutrition, it's very little time to actually get your glycogen stores back to where they were, you know, before you started the last match. And even that might not be optimal, you know, for actual football performance. Ideally, you want players to be able to have four or five days to fully recover, I think, from both from the knocks, but also to allow them to restore those essential carbohydrate fuel stores, particularly in the, in the muscles they're using in the legs, you know, to be able to enable them to play you know, at optimal level for the full 90 minutes. I mean, that's why we see so many players, I think, being substituted after 60 minutes. Some of them are essentially you know, run out of fuel, if you like, or run out of energy to be able to carry on at the same pace that everybody else is maintaining or that a potentially that a substitute could uh, come on with if they were to take over the last 30 minutes or so of the game. And even now within the seasons, like you say, all this different off-season and in-season and then the, you know, the end of season, the gap between one season ending, the next set of games beginning seems to be getting shorter and shorter, particularly when you factor in these international competitions that are taking place, the Euros, the World Cup, something's happening every two years. We've now got this Nations Cup as well. Clubs want to go on pre-season tours to earn some extra revenue and enhance their fan base in foreign countries and what have you. It's only—it's all driven by money at the end of the day, of course. But you know, it puts an increase in demand on the players. And the reality is, the best players play the most games. You know, because they're the guys you want in your first team week in, week out. Your Kevin De Bruyne's and Yuri Tielemans like that. You know, these guys from the Belgian perspective. For I was going to say, I know, know but, uh, but yeah, of course, yeah. you know, and they're the ones that are going to play in the, you know, in the international teams mm. as well, you know, so yeah. And the converse of that is the players that don't play very much. And there are implications of that too, isn't there? A player mm-hmm. who's, who, you know, they might be training, but, and you see it, you know, you, you see them warming up 
I'm talking about even those that even get selected to be backup players, yeah. so to speak. But quite a lot of them don't get to play, they can get to an extent where they rarely get to play. And it might get to the point where they'd rather stay at home with their club. And we're talking mm. tournament football at this point, because at least they get to play. And apart from, you know, if you don't play, you don't keep your skill levels up, your experience you know, it is a big yeah, part, isn't yeah. it? Is the whole experience, experiential side of this. But what are the ramifications of not playing? You know, I guess we need to factor that in too. Yes, because those players, you still want them to be able to maintain their fitness. So if they're not taking part in match day, which generally is considered to be the you know the most intense exercise day of the week for those that are actually involved in the game. They're not taking part in that. You want them to be doing something else that's pretty much equivalent to that in training in order to keep up the fitness to the same levels of those that are actually taking part in the game. I mean, one interesting thing you always hear managers saying in football is, oh, yeah, the guy's been back in training. Maybe he's had an injury, you know, and he's come back. I say, yeah, he's been back in training for three weeks now, but he's still like in match fitness and there seems to be this thought in football that you can only gain match fitness by actually playing matches when games are played at a real intensity in a competitive way not only perhaps just to bring you up physically to the required level but also like say mentally as well I think we forget how much the mental side of things is of importance in the game and you know nutrition can play a role there to a degree yeah, it's about getting games at the end of the day, really, to be able to play at the highest level. You Actually, know, Mike, you mentioned amazing. something interesting, which is um, it's something that I feel quite strongly about as a practitioner. You know, we get very obsessed with looking at sport and exercise nutrition science from a very black and white you know, lens, very reductionist perspective, which of course is, is, you know, I've talked about this on many podcasts. Of course, that's important because that's that's important to science. But in practice, we have to factor in things like the needs, the preferences, the individual likes, dislikes, cultural issues, religious issues, and fundamentally what is practical. And there are elements of just being practical that might be, can they even get access to this type of food? which there might be even other problems with, you know, the only place they can get the food is on the bus or the aeroplane or whatever. Mm. That influences the types of foods that people can and, and cannot eat all the way through to the risk of food contamination and or food poisoning or players just don't want to eat on the bus and or eat something cold or or whatever. Uh, there's quite a lot that is involved in that. And I wanted to draw, before we get into some sort of frameworks about training day and match day nutrition and so on from your perspective in that taking the science and applying it into practice what are the most critical areas who are the most critical stakeholders you see and you talk about this in your nutrition for top performance in soccer you you talk about you know the importance of the chef for example but at the end of the day the player has to be the person that eats this food just quickly you know before we get obsessed about sports nutrition science and how many grams and kilograms and this, that, and the other. What are the key areas there in reality are going to make any intervention more likely to be successful in terms of the impact it has on the player and or the team? Oh, well, you know, first and foremost, whatever goes on the plate, you want the player to eat it. 
And usually the way, the way these meals are formulated is you want them to eat everything on the plate. So the most important thing really is that you're providing food that the player is going to like, enjoy and eat. You know, eating food should be a joy. It's something that can improve our mood, you know, as well as just it's not just about refueling. It's part of social interaction as well with with teammates. It's, you know, great team bonding, isn't it? To go and sit down and have a meal before or after a game and talk about stuff. But, you know, getting players to eat what they like, like you say, suits their own individual preferences. You know, we might have our own. So, you know, as a nutritionist, we might say we want to have so many grams or grams per kilogram of, of carbohydrate and protein in there. But there's you know, literally thousands of different meals that can really sort of provide those sort of things that we want them to have. And it's a case of then matching that to what the player actually likes to eat and particularly avoiding things they don't like to eat. What a lot of some of the, the chefs that I speak to on this topic also tell me about, well, yeah, they, say they might say they don't like vegetables. We've got ways of producing meals where we can actually hide those because they get, you know, mashed up and it's like in a soup or something or, a, you know, it's in, in sort of the casserole bit of the uh, the dish that they're having. They've got the meat that they like there. And they don't actually realise they're getting these these nice healthy greens in there as well that they wouldn't probably eat if it was an isolated item on the plate in front of them. So there's a little bit of uh, tomfoolery going on as well. And also, I think particularly maybe for match day meals after a game when players, you know, they've had a hard time. Sometimes they've lost the game, of course, and they, you know, they want to relax, but they want to enjoy something as well. And they might feel in the build-up to the game, they're having to eat kind of what's prescribed. And maybe this is an opportunity to have something a little bit more like what they would uh, normally like, you know, and they're young men and women's in general in the professional game. So often they like things like takeaways, you know, so the chefs come up with what they call fakeaways. I'm sure you've heard of these things. Yeah, sort yeah, of thing. no, it's great. You know, you can produce a lovely meal as uh, you could describe as burger and chips, you know, but if it's got really healthy, lean ground, you know, steak or something there in, in your burger, you've got a healthy wholemeal bun. And instead of having, you know, greasy, chip chop chips, you have something like um, oven-baked sweet potato wedges or something like that, which tastes pretty much the same as as chips or even just oven, oven, oven-baked chips are a healthier option and less fatty than, you know, the, the ones done in a, in a frying pan in the grease. So, you know, there's lots of different ways of doing that. You can do the same things for pizzas and for lots of the, the pasta dishes. So it feels like you're going out for an Italian meal and you can garnish that with lots of tasty things which are you know always trying to add a little extra healthy ingredients and they're almost fooling the player into thinking well you know this is really really tasty and really really good and that's what you want you want to enjoy it at the end of the day and eat what's put in front of them and it is an art form i you know you don't have to be a a michelin-starred chef in fact there are problems no. with being a michelin-starred chef uh, <laughs> as i have found the love yeah. of certain lovely ingredients that aren't necessarily appropriate for uh, football players oh, yeah. but nonetheless it is an art form and that's where i think you know sport and exercise nutrition being applied effectively into practice has to include a consideration of what the food looks like what it tastes like 
And like you say, you know, make it tasty and make it enjoyable and make it interesting, even if it's to a certain extent not quite perfect on paper. The reality is that it's going to go in and stay in. And I guess if we flip that to the other side, you know, human beings eat food. Football players are a type of athlete. They have the same basic needs as any other human being. And and broadly speaking, eating a range of foods is going to more or less give most people with, with what they need to sustain life and be somewhat functional. Okay, not perform at their best, but they'll be okay. But there are a number of things that we need to be particularly focused on. And obviously, as we go up that hierarchy towards the elite athlete, in particular, those playing sort of late season international games, congested fixture schedules and so on. There's going to be a number of nutrients, though, that are particularly important. And I guess before we even break this down to what differentiates the nutrition requirements of a training day from a from a game day you know what are the main foods or earth food type in particular that you would say is absolutely the preference given there's a lot of fads and fallacies that exist in nutrition and and so on what sort of foods are going to be the prime directive when it comes to football players needs well as part of it, like I say, a healthy, varied, balanced diet, the main focus in a sense has to be on getting the carbohydrate intake right, because that's what fuels the muscles for, you know, 70% of match play. We know that from measurements of uh, metabolism and players, you know, and how much glycogen they're using up in their muscles and their liver during match play and and also to support intensive training. So that's the thing that's got to be the focus for getting the fueling up prior to a match and also then on match day and the the subsequent you know day of recovery after that that's where your carbohydrate intake's got to be the the highest together with sufficient protein and fat can make up the rest in a sense on on those days when you move on to the training days it all depends on what the aim of that training is and what's the session going to be about for some it might be a very light session or hardly anything at all and then maybe a little bit of gym work in the afternoon or perhaps you could put a bit more focus on the on the protein then and less so it's less so on the carbohydrate those are the main things ensuring the players are well hydrated when they turn up for training and you know in the build-up to a match and for you know when you've got congested fixture play periods that's going to start essentially the day before the game you know we'll say on match day nutrition you know it's all about what you have on match day but actually probably the most important meal is the meal the night before the match yeah, actually, I, I, this stuff is more important than some people might realize. And I, I just wanted to quickly come back to the carbohydrate conversation because, you know, whether we like it or not, that has become an area of obsession for people over the years. And whether they think it, uh, you know, it's going to quotes unquote make them fat, or I think, you know, to be more correct, politically correct or whatever about that statement is just going to have an unfavorable impact on their body composition, which, as I mentioned, is of great interest to football players nowadays, particularly those that have this habit of taking their shirts off after scoring goals and all that 
great drama that can occur with football. But one way or the other, you know, people like to look good and they care about themselves and not just about being elite athletes. But ultimately, this issue with carbohydrates is dangerous because that can creep over to influencing choices that players make where they will reduce their carbohydrate intake for fear of the impact that it might have on their body composition, for example. But as it relates to, you know, the main thing, which is ensuring there is sufficient glycogen in the muscle and in particular glycogen restoration strategies, like for for me in tournament football, that's just the biggest challenge is just trying to keep everyone's glycogen levels up. To illustrate why that's important, maybe you could just give us a, just a bit of an overview about, you know, why this topic's important and why we're trying to to hit that with our nutrition strategies as it relates to how this glycogen is actually stored in the muscle and how training and playing football actually mm-hmm. depletes that glycogen. Because I think with that understanding, we then understand our nutrition strategies and the priorities a little bit. Yeah. Better. Yeah. I mean, the thing with carbohydrate as a fuel source, you can only store a limited amount of it in the body and the bits where you need it for playing football are principally in your leg muscles and also in your liver. Your liver can hold about 100 grams of carbohydrate in the form of glycogen, same sort of glycogen as you have in your muscles. And that's just used to be broken down into glucose to top up the blood glucose, which is used as a fuel both at rest and particularly during exercise by your muscles, but it's also an important fuel for your brain as well. So, you know, in order to maintain, again, mental performance as well as physical performance, you need to have liver glycogen available to keep that blood glucose topped up. Because when you exercise and the muscles start extracting that glucose from the blood, they're essentially keep competing for that limited fuel supply with your brain. You don't want it running out. So, you know, you've got to keep that up. So that's why breakfast is so important the day before on match days because your liver glycogen goes down overnight while you're asleep because your brain's still using it. Even though you're asleep, you're still using six grams an hour. So if you're asleep for you know eight hours, let's say, you've used up half of your liver glycogen when you woke up in the morning. You don't want to start your match in that condition. Luckily, your liver glycogen will top up pretty quickly within a matter of hours if you take on board carbohydrate. It can be in the form of glucose or fructose, like you're getting fruits and fruit drinks, for example. The fructose can only be converted into glucose, and that really only occurs to a significant degree in the liver itself. So you're essentially giving preferential food to your liver if you give it some fructose in the morning as part of your breakfast. That's why I'm in favor. I like the idea of giving fruit juice, you know, 100% fruit juice. It's about 10% sugar in there to be a mixture of glucose, fructose, and galactose. And that's really good fuel for your liver. And then you've got your muscles. In your leg muscles, you might be able to hold up to most about 300 grams of glycogen. You have to be careful when you read the textbook because they'll say, well, the total amount stored in the body can be about 500 grams. But, you know, you've got lots of other muscles in your body, in your arms and your shoulders and your back and everything. You're not really using that much to a degree in uh, in football. It's what's in your legs that's important. That's what's going to make you fatigue if you run out. So getting that right is important. And when we play a game of football, we know that you use up 
probably at least 50% of that glycogen, but it's not used up evenly amongst your muscle fibers. We've got type 1 fibers, type 2 fast twitch fibers as well, and they tend to use it up a bit more quickly because they're more reliant on that, whereas the slow twitch fibers can actually use some fat in the lower intensity parts of the game. So your type 2 fibers tend to get more depleted. And that means some of your fibers can, even though overall in the average, the muscle might be down to 40% of what it was at the start of the game, you might actually have completely depleted some of the glycogen in some of those fibers. And that will have an impact on their ability to produce force and therefore your overall muscle's ability to produce force. That in turn, means you won't be able to maintain sprints for as long or do as many sprints in a certain amount of time. It might affect you know, the strength of your, your shooting ability and passing ability as well. So that's why it's so important. And it's going to you know, provide 70% of the calories we burn in a football match by an outfield player. It's going to become from their carbohydrate stores. And some studies have been done, albeit not using elite really elite level footballers, but we, we know some studies have been done where they've you know artificially influenced this by having players have a low carbohydrate diet for three days before a game as opposed to a high carbohydrate diet. And clearly, although first half performance isn't that much affected, it's the second half where you see this impact and the players cover less distance and much less distance at high speeds. So they're slowing down and not covering as much distance. So, you know, it's just a, an expression of the fatigue that's occurring because they've essentially run out of glycogen in too many of their muscle fibers. So that's why it's really important. And yeah. then when you stop, when you want to recover, and maybe you've got a game in three days' time, this process of glycogen recovery, restoration, by feeding carbohydrate in the meals you have, after a match and the days following a game, it's relatively slow, slower than it would be for, say, somebody who just runs in a straight line or cycling or swimming, because with football and also with rugby, you get muscle damage occurring, not just from people kicking you. <laughs> that happens anyway as part of the game. You get soft tissue damage that way. You've seen the bruises on the players that come off after games, but also because they're doing various eccentric muscle actions, particularly decelerating from sprints and landing from jumps and twisting and turning actions, which stretch the muscles while they're being activated. And this produces a degree of muscle soreness. And this seems to be one of the factors that results in a, a slower recovery of muscle glycogen after games like football compared to, say, cycling, where virtually no muscle damage occurs. Yeah, and we have a lot more control, don't we, over preparing a player in terms of feeding them and fueling them before yeah. a game or a training session. But all the chaos that tends to occur from the time the whistle goes and thereafter to include all the stuff that happens at half time, which is most definitely not them just sitting around wondering what they can eat and drink. There's, you know, rehab and and tactical stuff that's going on, uh, maybe a bit of drama that goes on. I've witnessed choice words, there yeah. yeah, there's yeah. all sorts of stuff that's going yeah. on and and stress 
and so on, which will impact the desire of an individual to refuel. You know, I know as the nutritionist in the dressing room, they've got a lot of things going on. They're not necessarily thinking you're the most important person in their life, sadly, sadly. But nonetheless, we're sitting there knowing your tank is nowhere near, you know, refueled. You know, what are the implications of that? I know you've mentioned it already, but what are the implications of that on a player not refueled? fueling and what are the strategies that research the evidence shows that we can employ to to do the best that we can to top up those fuel supplies yeah well again yeah half time the emphasis is going to be on carbohydrate getting some carbohydrate in there in whatever form you can get it in and some fluid you know to rehydrate particularly on a warm day there's only you know very limited opportunities during actual match play partly due to the rules of the game you know, there might be an opportunity if somebody's injured and the physio is coming on the pitch for a, a minute or so, you know, to toss a bottle to a player or something or or a gel maybe. But, uh, yeah, very limited time, 15 minutes from when they come off to when they're going back on. And like you say, probably the, the most important thing from the potential success of the team is, is the manager getting his message across to the players and the players taking that on board. So they can't be like, say, thinking about what they're eating or drinking. They've just got to be handed something that they can sit there and take on board while they're listening to what the manager has got to say and possibly what their other teammates have got to say about the, the progress of the game and how they can improve things if that's what needs to be done. So, yeah, so... I think really just talking about really drinks and gels. Yeah, and that's why and, and nothing else. And maybe some, you know, caffeine. And some players might take caffeine in the form of a sort of pill, powder, or potion before a game, or some like Jamie Vardy, like a you know, to, to sip a can of Red Bull or something like that, or an equivalent sort of energy drink with a high caffeine content as part of their pre-match ritual. But at half time, quickest way to get it on board is to take uh, what they used in the military, still do, which is a caffeine chewing gum to keep the soldiers awake at night when they're on night operations and need to be alert all of the time. You know, it's a life-threatening situation for them. Not quite life-threatening in football or Bill Shankly would disagree with me, I think. <laughs> but, you know, uh, but yeah, getting that on board quickly can be done with caffeine because you absorb some of that caffeine through the lining of the mouth as you as you chew it. The other thing I tell players is, you know, make sure you spit that out before you go out on the pitch. Yeah. I dread the time when somebody actually sort of accidentally inhales I'm that sure chewing gum, you know, which actually yeah. could be life-threatening for yeah. the player if that happens, you're blocking airway, you know. Yeah. So you don't want to risk that happening at all. So there's no need for to carry on chewing. No. And I just think it's just that picture we're painting of the chaos that's going on, but also the fact that in that dressing room, you know, there's a lot of individuals that are in there. Some of them absolutely, in my experience, don't like chewing gum, but they would absolutely do a shot of espresso or something. Some of them don't want sports bars, but they will eat a banana. Some of them will drink their carbohydrate drinks some of them want to eat something can be in any form but i think from my perspective the real emphasis there is you've got to get to know the players and what their needs and preferences are and then practice them as often as you can because because in a game scenario that they are on a whole nother level of you know from a psychological perspective 
their adrenaline's going off, you know, the manager's probably having a shout at them or whatever. There has to be, you know, as little as possible that gets in the way between them accepting the offer of a drink or a bar or, or for them to actually fancy a little bit of something. Whereas if they're all on the same thing, you know, the chances are that, that a fair number of them just won't touch it or won't do it. And then your whole strategy has failed. So I think it is important that people understand that there are many different ways to achieve this result. And it doesn't have to be just what we have seen in the research. Now, I carefully want to just make a point of, of, Certain studies have been done with certain products because there are reasons why they've got their hands on those products and or have managed to get some funding or, or whatever. But there are going to be similar things that you can find just from normal food sources that might also work. And you should factor those in. Do you want to just quickly mention, because you do mention this in your book, about that there are a variety of, of things that can be used. You don't have to just use the one that's got a branding or a copyright or a trademark. Well, no, no. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can say if you want your caffeine, like you say, you could get it as gum. You could get it as a, you know, a pill. You could get it as a part of a cereal bar. You can get it as part of a drink. You know, or a coffee, like you say, a strong coffee. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and yeah. I know some players do actually prefer to have. If they're going to have caffeine, they'll have it that way, maybe with a bit of a munch on a little bit of banana cake or something like that. You know, it's uh, yeah. you know, it's finding out you know what works for the player. And of course, you don't experiment with these things on match day. You find out what Definitely works in, in tra- <laughs> training and things like that. Yeah. You know, and uh, maybe have that sort of ready. Where it depends which teams you work with, but where their players, when they come into the dressing room, they've got their own you know locker with their stuff there. They'll sit in front of, but you know, have what they normally would like ready either in the locker or brought out just on the seat for when they come. So they could, you know, if they think about it, they can just pick up selection from whatever they they want to have. Maybe have some other things, perhaps general things on on a table where if suddenly you see something somebody else is having, they they fancy having a bit of that. So. And Mike, though, I think something that's that really is important is, you know, and this is especially from the practitioner or the sports science or, or whoever's involved in influencing players to take these things, is the absolute need to understand the strengths and limitations of these strategies and these products and the underpinning, as you mentioned earlier, you know, understanding the actual biochemistry, the physiology of these things, because on the one hand, it okay, it might be a waste of time, but it's not going to be harmful, but it could still be a waste of time. Or all the other way, it could be a problem. You might be giving them contaminated products, for example, because you didn't, you know, choose your products from a, a tested line of products, or you've thrown something absolutely brand new on a player on game day and they will have some sort of gastric reaction to it, which I've definitely seen before. Uh, it wasn't something I gave him, but somebody gave him a beetroot shot and this guy started coughing up what he thought was blood. And the psychological yeah. impact of that was like, you're killing me sort of thing. <laughs> just, no, yeah, just yeah. But it was the shock of it, you know, as well. Yeah. But listen, look, we could talk a long time about those things. I think let's just, because uh, we haven't, got a whole lot of time left here do you want to just quickly talk about training day nutrition and what the key considerations should be as it relates to what the evidence tells us currently well i mean it's difficult to do it in that sense because like i say because it all depends what's happening on on what you call training day you know it can be a light day it can be an intense day it can be 
you know, the day before the match where they might, the guys might just be practicing free kicks, corner routines and things like that, you know, and special moves. Very little what you might think of as normal training. So, you know, that influences obviously the, the energy requirements and mainly, you know, the carbohydrate requirements that are going to be needed. Every day you're going to need protein for the repair of the muscles to help maintain immune function to allow training adaptation to occur effectively after the training sessions and you know you need some fat in there in the diet to get the essential fatty acids that we need and also to get the fat soluble vitamins and you know most food doesn't taste great if you haven't got something with fat on the plate. So, you know, things like you want to cut out dairy, for example, because, you know, it's an excellent source of calcium, which is an imp- another important uh, you know, micronutrient for, for footballers to maintain strong bones. So it has to vary day by day, really, I think, what you have for training day nutrition, whereas, you know, you, you plan out for match day and recovery after a match, if a player's played the full 90 minutes, then that can be fairly sort of more regimented and we're, you know, much more clear on what we need for that. The rest is like taking into account other issues like body composition. So you don't want players eating too much fat or carbs, but you always want them to maintain a high level of protein intake. Because one of the advantages of that is that's what provides the best satiety as well. So you don't need as much fat and carbs if the aim is to restrict the energy intake because it's either been a recovery day or it's a you know essentially a, a very light training day. So the reason why I asked that question is because I knew you were going to say it depends. And the reason why I wanted to pose that question is because the difference between looking at a book chapter or a you know a consensus statement or whatever is the fact that it is not you know it's very static information it's not contextually or it's not contextualized for the situation at that time which and there are so many different scenarios that can occur and i've used the word chaos already in this conversation and it absolutely can be extremely chaotic and i think that that's something that has to be factored in particularly when we differentiate you know, what people are doing at home relative to what they'll do at a more controlled environment, such as the club canteen, where the chef hopefully is producing something in conjunction with the nutritionist, but that isn't always the case either. I've seen all sorts of variations on that, all the way through to, you know, accessibility to these things on the bus, on the plane, or in the kit bag, in the dressing room. There's so much, mm-hmm. isn't there, to this, which is why, yes. you know, I think it's tempting for people who aren't the nutritionists or the sports scientists or nutritionally trained sports scientists and so on to try and sort of, you know, do this all themselves. But the reality is that it is complicated. And like, you oh, said, yeah, it, it it's depends, difficult. It? It's difficult in the sense that, you know, people commenting recently about, you know, this, you know, the idea that in some sports, you know, there's insufficient energy intake and that in itself has has its own potential health problems that come with that. And that might particularly apply in the female game. There's a, probably a, even more emphasis on the sort of the, the body composition and the way you look kind of thing than there is in the male game. But when you ask the question, how do you avoid that? How do you actually you know, ensure that the player is getting the right amount of energy for any particular day? You know, we can't really estimate energy expenditure 
that accurately for a whole day for a you know, a player even playing a game on on match day, we know what sort of the typical sort of average values are, but that's going to be higher for a heavier or a player depending on his position. Like a midfield player will be expending more calories than say a you know a, a central defender and the goalkeeper, of course, you know, is another one who doesn't expend as much energy as the, any of the outfield players generally. So yeah, and it's also complicated. playing and, this week relative to next week is going to be different, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so you can prescribe and you can prescribe energy intake, obviously reasonably accurately if you're involving a nutritionist and you know the, the person who's actually preparing the dish, if it isn't the nutritionist himself or herself, yeah, actually estimating an individual's actual energy expenditure on any one day, it's you know it's rough guesswork is where you're at. And the only things you really have to go on as to whether you're getting it right or not is, well, is their body weight gradually increasing day after day? In case you're feeding them too much, the player will probably tell you, well, I'm putting on weight, you know. So regular measure into body composition, not DEXA, because you can only do that a limited number of times, maybe two or three times a year at most, I would suggest, because it involves X-ray radiation which gives you your gold standard measurement. But other than that, most people just use you know the, the bathroom scales to see how they are. Now, some of these ones now you can get with the you know the bioelectrical impedance measurement. So it gives you an estimate of your body fat. It might not be all that dead accurate, but if you're measuring yourself the same way under the same conditions every day, like you measure yourself perhaps first thing in the morning, after you've had a pee, before you've had a drink, you know, measure yourself then, and you should get a reasonably reproducible measure from from day to day that you can compare with. So you believe the figure you see in front of you exactly, but you can tell whether it's going up or whether it's going down, and then you you know whether you're in the right sort of ballpark for what you eat. We're humans; we eat to satisfy our hunger. Of course. Of course. And so, you know, most of us have a reasonable idea of how much we can eat without putting on weight. And as long as you don't do the naughty extras like drinking uh, too much wine or something like that, which is really. Why would anybody want to do that? No, no. But I mean, that's a no no for footballers. You know, you know that. So, you know. It's interesting, Mike. Sorry, it's interesting. I've more than once had this scenario where, you know, we'll do, say, the equivalent of a pre season uh, DEXA. Maybe uh, end of season Dexer uh, will do our Isaac skin folds throughout the season, but the player goes home and measures himself on his own scales and it tells him that he's whatever percentage body fat. Which I can't stand it when people talk about percentages because, you know, uh, mm. oh, it's such a misleading area. But it is interesting how impactful that actually can be to the individual, their relationship with their own scales at home relative to their every six weeks, every three weeks or whatever it is you get with the club nutritionist yeah. or the DEXA, you know, the incredibly uh, high-tech methodology that goes there, but just standing on a scale and also what the player sees themselves through their own lens, through their own mind's eye and their own judgment of their own body composition against their own reference, which is whatever they think people are looking at, you know, whether he's got his six pack or whatever. But but what I find interesting about this is the power that that can have and how it can influence eating behaviors and choices is, you know, is something that I deal with regularly with my own players. It's an interesting one, just that. Yeah. And, and again, it all comes down to, you know, education, isn't it? You know, yeah. not letting the player, you know, rely on what they hear from their friends or on the internet 
and this and seeing pictures of other people. It's you know, it's, it's like telling things. Well, yeah, you know, that uh, that scale you've got should measure your body weight pretty accurately. <laughs> you'd you'd want your money back if it didn't. But you know, take the uh, like say the percentage body fat measure you might get from that with a pinch of salt and just use it to say, well, that on the on that particular set of scales, that's what it's telling you. It might be right or it might be wrong. But the important thing is it changing from day to day. Yeah. And that's the only thing you need to tell us. If you think it's going up consistently or it's going down consistently, tell your nutritionist about that. Do some do yeah, well skin that, or whatever, that, you know, and put them straight on what, well, no, it's not that, you know. But Mike, that illustrates to me an important part of my day-to-day job as a practitioner in a team sport environment is going out of my way to to have conversations with players and get their buy-in and their trust because otherwise it's all too easy for them to believe in other sources of information or mm. interpret information like the body fat percentage on a bathroom scale, as opposed to what you're assessing with your own methodology, you know, for all the science that exists and all the degrees that people might have and, you know, published papers and this, that, and the other, it is, and I guess we should sort of end on this point because we're going to be guilty of talking for hours about this stuff. Is this idea of translating the science to practice and as I started this conversation, that's something that you're familiar with. It is something that I'm obsessed with, science to practice. You know, what are your sort of maybe final thoughts about that, I guess, given you've been on both sides of that? And any concerns, if you have any, with regards to just how far off the reservation that translation can go sometimes? And maybe we just need to be mindful of, you know, basic things as opposed to the ultra complex areas. Well, yeah, I think from the player's perspective, you know, not overcomplicated things, but just trying to perhaps explain a little bit of the, not so much the science, the reasoning behind what you're trying to advise them to do and really beginning that as early an age as possible, you know, at academy level, you know, get players into good habits at the start of their careers and they're much more likely to carry on with that because that then becomes the norm to them and yeah but i'm a great believer in you know educating people so that they understand it's all very well saying oh you should be eating this or you should be eating that you know the first thing any intelligent player is going to say well why why can't i eat this instead i don't like that why why have i got to have that you know is there an alternative to beetroot juice well luckily nowadays there are there's a number of other different sources of that or you can say well you can get it from you know a selection of natural foods that you can eat it doesn't all have to be beetroot you know it can be you know leafy greens and things like that and other root vegetables that have it and uh, rhubarb is another one that's a good source that's not often mentioned you know but there's other ways of getting these things ultimately it's about yeah again getting back to education helping people understand why they should be doing what the experts are supposedly you know trying to get them to do yeah no absolutely and i you know, again, it's that thing of obsession over the science and there's, oh, you know, this research has shown that uh, nitrates will have this particular potential impact and then we go out of our way to do everything we possibly can to have them taking all their beetroot shots and this, that and the other. And the reality is that it may well have an impact, but relative to the bigger picture, it may not be the most important thing that you need to be factoring in. And that's why I mentioned, you know, the understanding the strengths and limitations but also being able to step back and take that bigger picture perspective and make those 
sort of cost to benefit decisions because you can really confuse people. If you start talking about everything that we know in sport and exercise, nutrition or sports science, which actually isn't that much yet. I mean, obviously, I think if we're totally realistic, we're still very much on a learning journey. We just have to be careful about how that's imparted over to to the public, which is why, you know, just finishing up on this consensus statement, it took years to bring about. It's a relatively short document in many ways. You know, you could imagine the ultimate playbook for, you know, sports nutrition interventions could be this sort of massive textbook, like your third edition of the Sport and Exercise Nutrition, which is very much the Bible for our students. But the reality is that, you know, there are some key areas, of course, but football is a is a game that involves lots of moving parts and considerations. And uh, I guess we just have to be careful with that. Oh, yeah, indeed. Nutrition is only one part of it. Some will pay a small part. But some people like Arsene Wenger, I think, and Brendan Rodgers and the guys who are in the know, Jurgen Klopp, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson, going back a few years, you know, those guys realise the importance of nutrition or what they were missing by ignoring nutrition effectively, which is what they were doing sort of 30 years ago and taking on that on board. And at the time, you know, over, over those early years, the first managers to adopt that probably gained some considerable advantage to the performance of their players over the opposing teams that were still, you know, acting like dinosaurs when it came to nutrition. So, uh, well, that's a good point. Yeah. And I think Impact that sort of brings be different us to the... Depending on the context of when you look at it. Can't, you Absolutely. Know. Well, I think, you know, look, football, soccer, it's a competitive sport. Even for amateurs, they can get pretty competitive. And in, I guess, the spirit of marginal gains or whatever, it, you know, it is, you know, it is not necessarily the same as certain skill sets you need to acquire as a talented football player and your fitness levels and this, that and the other. But it is up there with an important factor, isn't it, Mike? Yeah. Yeah. I think if you ignore nutrition, you know, it's a potential for disaster, really, in that that would be the take-home message that it it does play a role not only in performance and recovery but in your overall health as well so we should all be eating healthily and well and not exceeding our energy requirements and having things we shouldn't absolutely <laughs> i think that brings us to ron Morton's statement that i constantly misquote but it's something along the lines of you know great nutrition won't make a bad or, or an average athlete an elite athlete will, yeah. but poor nutrition can potentially downgrade an elite athlete to not such an elite athlete. And I think that's an important perspective, either which way it should be an important part of one's strategy to becoming a a better, more robust football player. But anyway, listen, Mike, we're in danger of having a multi-section podcast here. And I have lined up a whole bunch of guests, actually, who are practitioners working in a variety of Premier League and national football teams where we're going to talk about the perspective of the performance nutritionist. I've also got a performance chef coming on to have a good chat with them and a number of other people one way or the other. And of course, the usual theme of this podcast, some of the more technical, the more sciencey stuff, like when we had a conversation with you about nutrition and immunity for athletes, we've got a lot of those things coming up as well. But I wanted to thank you for your time i always enjoy having a good chat with you mike your passion not only for science but football is is evident and i personally i bought this copy of your book mike and i can honestly say that it is now another really useful part of my kit bag that i travel around with because there are some really great 
resources, both to the practitioner, the nutritionist, but also to the player, which is what I love about that book. And of course, the consensus statement, as I mentioned right at the beginning, is an essential part of my football nutritionist toolbox. So I will link to all of these things in in the notes. And I hope you don't totally disappear into retirement, Mike. So hopefully we'll get you back on for some conversations in the near future. But I just wanted to thank you on behalf of myself and the listeners for all of your invaluable information, advice and little tidbits that you've given us today. Thank you, Lawrence. It's been a been a pleasure as always. And I, I look forward to listening to those uh, upcoming podcasts that you've got because it's, it's, a, it's a great resource you have here. And I always enjoy listening to these. Well, thank and you. I even love at it. the age of 66, I continue to learn something new all of the time and you never stop learning. So I love it. I love having these chats just from a selfish perspective. If everyone <laughs> is listening in and gets to benefit, then that's even better. So anyway, thank you very much, Mike, and take care of yourself. Thank you. Pleasure.